This is The Shift Podcast. Hey, thanks for checking out The Shift Weekend Podcast with John Jang. On this episode, let's talk love. Nicole Haley gets into dating and relationship issues, such as who pays for dinner and when to put down that phone. Tax specialist Jerry Veteratos from ufile.ca shares advice on how to manage your tax return post-deadline if you happen to be a little bit behind. Plus, journalist and publisher Ari Shapiro gives his perspective on the ups and downs of the handling of this pandemic by the Doug Ford government in Ontario. Hey, do you like podcasts? Then why not subscribe to ours? You can find it on Apple, Google, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more. All right, a very special guest joining us back on the program. You know who this is. It's Nicole Haley, our relationship, dating, and love expert that you can find online at NicoleTalksLove.com. Nicole, welcome back to the show. Awesome. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Yes. Now, before we go any further, uh, it's someone's birthday. So happy (laughs) birthday, Nicole. This is awesome getting you to work here on your special day. Thank you. Yeah, it's super fun. It's all good. All right. Uh, we're going to get a lot of uh, birthday shout outs, I'm sure. 877-399-9898. You shift heads out there. Send Nicole some love. It's a birthday. <laughs> got her to work here. So uh, that's commitment to this. Now, um, as you know, uh, Nicole joins us uh, uh, every so often here on the show every couple of weeks so that we can get some advice. And if you have any questions for Nicole, uh, you can run them through me or you can text into the uh, station. You can call in 877-399-9898 and uh, we'll try and get some answers here for you. Nicole, happy to um, let you know that we got some brand new questions mm. from those that have some, you know, curiosities about being in relationships, dating and all that. So if you're ready, Let's we do will it. begin the gauntlet. Okay. Starting mm-hmm. with Kyle out in Kelowna. He sent in this one. Uh, he wrote, I need some clarification here. I went through my girlfriend's phone, which I know is a mistake and it's wrong, but I found out that she's been talking to somebody else. Now, they were not necessarily scandalous messages, but I was actually never told about this person. So who is actually in the wrong here? Mm, such a good one. Tricky to answer, right? Because the curiosity goes to what made you be cu- or curious to want to look at her phone? Was there some things that led to you wanting to interrupt into her phone and ask those questions, like to find some answers? So my question for you, Kyle, would be like, what prompted that? What were you looking for to begin with, right? Really get curious with yourself because that might be the conversation you want to have to begin with, right? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Was there something off? And then the curiosity goes to what are you feeling? Are you feeling triggered? Are you feeling like threatened by this? Are you feeling like uncertain? So those are a lot of honesty questions you want to explore with her and with yourself first. Whether it's a right or wrong, I don't think there's a right or wrong in this. It's more like, what are we feeling and what's bringing up for us that we need these answers or we're we're scouting to find things that are under hidden in a sense. Yeah, I think like, again, honesty is the best policy. Now, if he committed an act of violating that that honesty and and that trust by going through the phone, um, I I think he has to, I mean, this is me not as an expert, but just Mm -hmm. somebody on the sideline, that you have to admit that you did do wrong here and say sorry for that and apologize for that first. There's a a bunch of reasons why somebody might not tell you that I'm talking to somebody. Maybe they were planning a surprise birthday party or something. I don't know. So many reasons. Yeah. And there's so many reasons. And when you start to make a story up about everything, that's the trickiest part, right? We'll read into things to feel something and we'll make a story and then we're looking for evidence to back it up. And so that 
that's why the curiosity is you want to start before, like, what am I looking for? And why am I even going into her phone to begin with? What's off that I feel the need to look for something information. And that's where you want to be more curious and ask yourself, what am I really looking for? And can I get it without having to do this? Having that honest conversation with yourself. I think that's such a great point. Um, Hopefully that uh, clears things up there for you, Kyle. Uh, Moving on this one from Marvin didn't give uh, where Marvin is texting from, but uh, we'll move on. Marvin writing, uh, I've been seeing somebody here. It's been going pretty well, but we recently had a conversation. She made it clear that she's not looking to have kids, but I know that I am. Do I even try to convince her otherwise, or is this an appropriate time to end things and find somebody who's more in line with what I'm thinking and feeling? Mm-hmm. It's so tricky when we really want something and we really think that this person can provide that and we find out we're misaligned. It's really hard to get honest with ourselves. When we try to convince someone uh, to have the same values as us, it never will feel right. Because when we're convincing someone, we're not doing it because we don't know if they're really doing it because they want to, or now they're doing it because they feel they need to. And that energy never feels good. So to be really honest, you may have to really ask yourself, if this is really important to have children, then you may have to look at like honoring what you want and being okay that the person you're with isn't on the same page as you and trust that you'll find someone that is on the same page. Because when we convince anybody to want what we want, it never feels good because you know it's not genuine and we don't know how long it'll last. Yeah, I mean, th- those are great points. I mean, I think when you have to lay out an argument, I, I think or I, I feel like you should think or be this way, they might say yes, but then they might feel like, why am I having to bend who I am for somebody mm-hmm. like that? So again, mm-hmm. I think that's a fundamental issue there, an important one for sure. But mm-hmm. uh, like in the, in, in the same sense, have you found those that maybe just needed to find the right partner and, and have come to the conclusion like maybe I do want to have kids or likewise, maybe that other partner going, you know what, we don't need kids because I'm so happy with you and we can create mm-hmm. something that, you know, we don't need to have children moving forward. Yeah, I think that's both. I think sometimes people are so looking for a relationship before a family. And so they're so excited to just be in a relationship that if they get the family, then it's a bonus. And then there's some people that want the family almost more than they want the relationship and so it's really getting honest with yourself I think that's the theme tonight it'll be is like what do you really want and are you willing to let go of something to have something else it's it's a choice it's a compromise and you have to really get clear are you willing to compromise because someone's compromising whether it's that other woman saying yes to have children or you saying no it's okay you don't want children it's a compromise yeah absolutely Uh, we're in conversation with Nicole Haley she is our relationship dating and love expert at NicoleTalksLove.com another question here moving along this one from Ariel in Edmonton writing, I need to know the golden rule if there is one. Who actually pays on the first date? And what's the appropriate way to approach this subject? Because it never seems like it's a good idea to bring up this kind of stuff. And I think this is a a, a great point for a lot of people because I personally, Nicole, like I always offered to pay. Okay. And um, we, we, we can break the ice that way. But I, I don't mm-hmm. know, maybe it's a, this, this masculinity thing, which can be a, mm-hmm. a fault of mine. But I always feel like I'm just going to pay first because if we had a lovely time, that's what I'm paying for. There's no mm. expectations. I just want to mm. nice that first step. Yeah. And what does it feel like for you to pay? Do you feel um, like... I, I feel like I, I just feel I think the word would be appropriate. I, I think it's okay. appropriate because I'm the one that probably asked to have sure. them go out with me. So I feel like it's on my dime that we need to probably 
make that happen. Nice. Yeah. I like it. I like your approach for sure. And I love that you just said there's no obligations. You paid for a really good time and that's it. The moment you're not looking for something else. And I think a lot of times women can be like, well, if I pay or we go half, then I don't owe anything in return. And I think it's learning that if you're with a really quality individual, a guy, you're not going to want something long-term. Like there's not an obligation. You're in the moment. So I think that's key. But when it comes to like who pays, I think it really is that idea of like that generosity. So a lot of men will step up, but I think it's an energy. If he feels obligated, if he feels you're entitled, like he should pay, it's his job to pay. If that energy comes off or you sit back and just expect, it never feels good Mm. because it comes from that unauthentic energy. But if you're as a woman and you're like so generous and you've had such a good time and you're appreciative, then a guy's going to be wanting to pay. It's a very natural thing for him to want to do. But a lot time it's an energy he feels and so when he feels obligated it doesn't sit well one of the things i sometimes teach my women whether it's the first date or a couple of dates in is if you go to reach for your wallet and you're willing to pay or you're willing to meet it shows a guy that you're considerate like you're not just sitting there and expecting him to do it but you're genuinely like enjoying the moment as well and sharing that moment i think it's that energy of how we show up and what we think we should get <laughs> Here's a fun question for you because this is, I, I'll admit, this is not my story, but okay. I have had a friend who used like a Groupon on the first date. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Or like using any kind of coupon on a first date? <laughs> that to me seems a little like eyebrow raising. I don't know if I'm <laughs> onto something here though. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit taken back by that. Um, because what it does is it puts a story in her mind as a woman or the other partner, right? Whoever is doing it, but let's say it's the guy in her mind, that woman's now thinking either he doesn't have enough money. He's feeling like he has to like scrunch and discount this evening. So I'm awfully not worth the investment. So she'll create a story about it. I can see the guy probably being really practical, really logical. Like this just makes sense. I've got this coupon, it's been sitting here forever. I never go to those restaurants. Why not use it? I get the logic in it, but what the story is for her, she'll make a story up about the value in that moment and she'll discredit his value. Oh, that's a really good point to bring up because again, like I I think I could approach it reasonably. It's like, okay, we're going to have a good time, but why not save a little bit of money where she's like, I'm not worth for full value. Like, yeah, I think, I think that's a really good way to put it. Uh, that's an excellent question there from Ariel. I really appreciate that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susie in Abbotsford saying, I've been finding it uh, extremely hard living with my partner now over the past year. Now, background context, we've been living together for two and a half years, but this pandemic has made things just a lot more stressful for both of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't get out, meet up with friends if we're fed up with each other. I feel like this could, in fact, endanger our relationship. Really don't know how to fix this. What are some tips that you would have for me? Yeah, great question. You're so not alone. I just want you to know that what you're feeling so that you don't feel so isolated, even in what you're feeling, right? Because it's, it's enough to feel isolated in this world um, and the situation, but to know that you're not alone, what you're feeling. What you want to really look at is how do you carve out some real specific times for you to individually do your thing? You're probably living on top of each other. You're probably not got a lot of personal space, a lot of personal downtime. So it's really carving that out. Now that it's summer, this is your time to get outside as much as you can. Um, Get the park, go outside if you can, at the patios. 
your own backyard where you can create that space. When we don't have space, we start to lose the desire. We start to get too comfortable with each other. We start to get too familiar and almost like brotherly, sisterly love because there's not that spiciness. And the spiciness is by tension, sexual tension. And how do you create sexual tension is by space. And we have space when we go to different jobs, when we go out for different evenings with our friends. And those things aren't really necessarily available to us. So it's learning how do you create that in an environment that's quite contained. So it's looking to create different space. I wrote in an article talked about like even create one of your rooms as your own me time. So you might say the living room is off limits for the next two hours. It's just my space. So he has to be in the bedroom or maybe in the kitchen or somewhere else so that you have that space if you can't get outside. And even that starts to create some distance. You want to really be able to foster that tension, that sexual tension to create the curiosity. I think that's a really good point, too, because a lot of young couples, I would imagine, have uh, smaller apartments on average. And so Mm -hmm. they never realized that this whole pandemic would have happened. And when they originally went and secured that uh, smaller apartment, maybe the original thinking was, okay, this is just going to be a place where we come home to after work. And we don't necessarily have to be working in this environment at all times. So then you find yourself, oh, my goodness, like 600 square feet or 500 square feet. That's just not enough for how we're operating on a day. Oh my gosh, so true, so true. So it's really learning to find out work. You have some of these spaces in your home. I know I'm in Vancouver and there's not a lot of condos that you can have balconies, right? So you're really stuck inside. So it's finding out where you can create that space, even in the home. Maybe it's taking half a closet out, a storage room and making a little bit of space or just calling out one of the room and having it as your time for a little bit. Yeah, you just gotta get really creative. All right, we got one more question here. This one from Bob in Toronto. And I feel like this is a new age problem here for you, Nicole, (laughs) but I'm sure you can understand this one. So Bob wrote, this is probably very specific, but my girlfriend constantly wants me to take photos of her and us when we're out on dates and out in public. I have become that stereotypical Instagram boyfriend. I try to be supportive and do things, but it's really starting to bother me. It feels more like she's interested in the likes than the date itself. Is this actually a thing or am I overreading this entire situation? Mm, really good. Yeah, I think it's a common thing that's happening more and more for sure. And it, the more tricky it's getting to navigate, right, what our roles are. And what I'm hearing is, Bob, you're feeling probably a bit threatened by it. You're getting, she's getting a lot of attention that she probably has gotten a lot from you. So before the phones, before all these likes, we would seek a lot of that validation and affirmation from our partners. Now we don't have to look to our partners as much. We can look externally for it. And so there may be feeling that bit of threatenedness on a deeper level, for sure. But what you may look at is having a conversation like, hey, babe, I really love taking your pictures. I'll do it for the first hour of our date and then maybe once more. And then that's it because I really want to focus on you or I really want our time to be us. So you can start having these conversations like we talked about Juan about having that honesty and really asking what you need in the moment, too. Because if we don't communicate and this is a key for any situation, we don't communicate what we need. Resentment builds and resentment is the destroyer of relationships, starts to put a wedge between us. So the key is, is you got to figure out what do you need? And how are you able to express it so your partner understands? Yeah, that's a good way to point it out, too. And even though uh, Bob is dealing with this being his girlfriend, I'm sure it works both ways, too. And girls Mm -hmm. have to often be the photographer in the relationship if Mm -hmm. if, if their boyfriend or if their partner happens to be uh, like one of those social media influencers. You know, they do have to do that for a living if what they do is all digitally uh, focused, you know, and got to get new followers, got to make sure you're you're keeping up with campaigns and things like that. But it's probably a little much for somebody that never like signed up to be 
both a partner and like a social media <laughs> coordinator. Yeah, exactly. Like a professional <laughs> photographer as well. It's true. And even if you aren't um, a real big social media like influencer, there's still that level of like, oh my gosh, babe, another photo for either gender. Really? Can we just be in the moment? And I think a lot of people are feeling like the moment's not enough. We need to film the moment. We need to capture it on camera. Like we're missing the moment. And I think people are starting to feel that more and more now that we want to be more present because that's where the connection is. Well, since you and I are both in Vancouver, there's that restaurant called The Score on Davy, and I went there right. a few years ago, and I found this really interesting. Some of the booths that you can sit in at, they have this little lockbox where as soon as you arrive, everyone takes their cell phone, puts it yeah. into the lockbox, the server comes in, and actually just locks it, so no <laughs> one can be on their phone for the entire night. Yeah. What are your feelings on something like that, where yeah. um, obviously it's a really n neat idea, but is mm -hmm. it maybe like a red flag for your relationship if all of a sudden you have to resort to tactics like that? <laughs> Well, you know what's funny? I don't know if it's a red flag because I think we are so addicted. I don't even think we mean to be. And I think the pandemic is on some level, my personal opinion, I'm doing some research. Our addiction to the, our cell phones has increased because we're bored and we're flicking and we're looking for validation and we're looking for some kind of human connection on our phones. There's this uh, hyper need to be on it all the time. So to be able to put it away is so important. Even at night, like if you're, if you're living at home with your partner, even having your own little box, I've done that. And I've suggested to different couples to have it at 7 PM. It's not, you don't pull out the phone again until the next morning or for at least two hours because the phone is such a distraction and it's designed that way. Like it's designed to keep us on there. It's got specific things and algorithms to keep our attention wanting more. So I don't think it's necessarily a red flag. It's more recognizing what do we need to like break the habit because we actually can't ourselves as humans we're so addicted to it and so something like that lockbox but I, I challenge all the listeners like try to put your phone away like mm. in another room for an hour or two and notice your body reaction like are you like I just walked by that room again I should really see maybe someone's posted maybe I got a message it's really important <laughs> like we have all these excuses because yeah. you'll realize how addicted you are if you can't get an hour pass without needing to look at your phone it's really powerful exercise oh, almost think, too much no you're <laughs> probably right it is eye-opening because when i leave the house without my phone like i feel yeah. that nakedness and i'm like oh, yes. i'm so vulnerable like oh i don't god. know what to do with myself yeah. don't even how am i gonna get hold of anybody oh my god exactly yeah and then you get to the office and you're like oh that's right we have this thing called the internet with my office and emails <laughs> yeah. and all that but yeah, it's, it's, it's a sign of the times uh mm -hmm. nicole uh, appreciate you doing this as always always a lot of fun and i love the questions that are coming in and again to our listeners reminding you you can email me at john at it's the shift.ca we'll get those questions to nicole next time she joins us and you can always submit your questions through our text message inbox at 877-399-9898 nicole thank you so awesome. much for this we'll talk to you talk to you again in about uh, a couple of fridays from now love it thank you so much this is the shift podcast let's bring in a special guest uh, who joins us up again here on the show he is jerry veterados a national tax specialist with ufile.ca jerry appreciate you giving us some time here tonight Thank you very much for having me. Now, as we know, the tax deadline has come and passed, but that doesn't mean that the tax stories are over with just yet, because Jerry, as we know, it happens every year. Many Canadians do miss the deadline for one reason or another. So if someone is listening right now and they find themselves in that situation, what should they be doing? What should they be thinking? Uh, they should be doing whatever they can to file their tax return. And, that's, and that includes people, I mean, that's obviously very prescient for those who owe money right now to the CRA. 
if you haven't filed your tax return, now you will be slapped with a penalty. Uh, so whether uh, you know whether you are uh, eligible for the interest penalty, the interest holiday or not. So for example, uh, those who received uh, pandemic-related benefits, such such as the the CERB and the CRB or employment insurance, they don't pay any interest on their balance owing until the 30th April uh, of April of next year. Issue is that there's no penalty holiday, so you will be slapped with a penalty if you haven't filed your tax return. And it's five percent right off the bat, and it's one percent for every month that you are late. So that could really add up. Now, for those who have refunds, they say, "I could wait. I've got time." Well, what I would say to those individuals is, "Congratulations! You just gave the government an interest-free loan." Hmm. And and it's very rare the government would do that kind of favor to you. So go get your money. You put it to good use. And not only that, by being late with your filing, now you're delaying the payments of certain benefits, such as the Canada Child Benefit or GST credit that you might be entitled to, because the government cannot process these benefits until you file your tax return. Jerry, I, I want to run this scenario by you because, as we know, recently the uh, 2021 Canadian census went out to many Canadians across the country. I heard a story where one of my friends has a roommate, and as he was filling out the census, being as accurate as possible, their roommate actually got mad at them, and they got into a discussion like, why are you so angry that I'm answering this you know, on your behalf? I'm trying to be honest. I'm trying to do what Canadians are encouraged to do. Turns out that roommate hadn't paid their taxes in years and so was worried that because they were all of a sudden being named and identified in the census that the government would essentially come knocking down their door. Obviously, this could be a rare exception, but those that find themselves in a situation where maybe they haven't paid their taxes in a number of years, they might try to convince themselves like, well, they're never going to find out if they haven't already. How would you react to a situation like that? Uh, I would react and try to convince these people to file their tax returns because your issue is going to be in this and, and, and being a practitioner in taxation, what I've, what I've noticed when, the, when you are late by several years of the government, eventually they will catch on. Now, they might not catch the census because it's, it's two different departments. So CRA and the department that deals with the census, which usually stats can, uh, these are completely separate departments, so they don't necessarily talk to each other. Your issue is going to be is when the CRA finally catches on, their reaction will be quite harsh. And the reaction is going to be that they're going to essentially freeze all your assets. So what they're going to do is they're going to freeze your bank account. You won't be able to collect any cash. Your employment income is going to be going to a bank account that's completely frozen until you file your tax return. On top of the penalties that you would owe, and remember what I mentioned before, 5% the moment you're late and 1% for every month that you are late. Add that up, that's a lot of money that you owe the government. So I would say, you know, as quickly as possible, file those returns, go ahead and do them, and just make sure that you don't end up in the worst case scenario where the government literally freezes your accounts and then you have to now go back and try to and try to get those accounts back. Yeah, I mean again, this could be a rare situation. I'm hoping it's a rare situation. I would assume most of our listeners here on the shift uh, have do done their due diligence, they 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 file their taxes, but of course things happen, life happens, maybe you are a little bit late as you're hearing uh, jerry talk about try and get that in asap now jerry uh just recap for us again some of the key differences this year especially with that work from home benefit that people should really know about 
So essentially, the government gave uh, what, what happens with the, with the work from home is it's what we call home office expenses, which is a component of employment expenses, and that's a deduction on your tax return. So it works the same way as an RSP contribution. When you contribute to your RSP, you're reducing your taxable income, the income you get taxed on. Your home office expenses works the exact same way. So what the government did is to introduce a more simplified approach to claiming that deduction based on your expenses from working from home. So since now more Canadians are newly eligible uh, for this deduction, the government introduced what they call the temporary flat rate method, where you simply claim $2 for, per day as a deduction for every day you were required to work from home in 2020. And the cap is 200 days, uh, meaning you could claim up to a maximum of $400. Okay, as a deduction off your tax return. So that was that was one thing that the government introduced. Now the old what I, what I would call the old method, uh, which now the government calls a detailed method, is where you're claiming actual expenses that you paid in your home office. So for example, rent, electricity and heating, uh, supplies like uh, like pen, paper, stationery, etc. So for those expenses, you're allowed to claim those as well. You have a choice between either the flat rate where you just claim that four hundred dollars, or you can claim. Uh, your actual expenses, some of them that I mentioned uh, before, and for those expenses, you have to prorate based on the square footage that your home office represents vis-a-vis the rest of your home. So that was the big change uh, this year that the government introduced, and it's a big change for many of us, including myself, uh, because we are now newly eligible for this deduction, whereas before, most Canadians were not eligible. Right. And that flat rate method that you talked about, that is specific only to 2020, right? We don't think this is going to be around for, let's say, the 2021 tax season? It probably will be, uh, because let's not kid ourselves. I mean, most, uh, those who are listening to us right now, they were probably, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people who are listening to us right now are probably still required to work from home. Mm-hmm. So it is very likely the government's going to extend this for 2021. Where we might see it being eventually phased out will be 2022. But remember that home office expenses is not new. This isn't a new deduction. What's new is the flat rate method. And I, I, I'm positive they will extend that for 2021. I'd be shocked if the government doesn't extend it. Fair enough. And finally, Jerry, before we let you go here, uh, when it comes to paying your taxes or filing it in, rather, and if you are still finding that you're you're behind the deadline and you're worrying a little bit, is there ever a case you've heard of where the government is willing to go lenient or willing to sympathize with your situation? Because as we know, Canadians are just struggling right now. Maybe there's a lot of things going on for a certain individual. It's probably not likely, but is there any circumstance in which somebody might be able to get a little bit of breathing room from the CRA? Well, legally speaking, uh, the government gives leeway uh, when it comes to filing late, especially when it comes to penalties, uh, if there is a, a specific reason that you could point to. For example, you were hospitalized. Uh, for example, you know, your home caught on fire, you know, heaven forbid, but uh, something like that might happen. So in those kind of circumstances, there are legal methods with a CRA where you could actually uh, cancel the penalty as long as you can make that kind of proof uh, with a CRA. So, so, so it's what they call taxpayer relief measures. Um, now, but again, it has to be a very, a really good a reason, you know, that, that, that you haven't uh, filed your return. Now, because of the pandemic, it is likely, I believe at the very least, that the government will be more lenient, especially, uh, especially with the penalties. I mean, some provinces have even announced this, have even told, uh, told their, their, uh, their residents that, that uh, they will turn a blind eye. Like Quebec, for example, literally said, look, the deadline's April 30th, but we're going to turn a blind eye till May 30th. 
So they literally said that. So maybe the government's going to say that as well. I, I'm sure the directive to the CRA agents will be, look, just fall back on it. And remember, for those who can't pay their amount owing right now, because, you know, this pandemic really, not only was it a health problem, but it was an economic problem across uh, Canada, uh, you can uh, make installment payments with the government. You could call them and say, look, I can't pay this amount owing. I don't have the money right now. Things are really bad. And you can set up, a, uh, you know, a payment schedule with them uh, in order to pay your balance owing in a more, in an easier way. All right. Uh, he is Jerry Veteranos, a national tax specialist with ufile.ca. Jerry, as always, appreciate you giving us some time and breaking down some of the uh, questions that I'm sure Canadians are asking themselves right now. Thanks. Thank you so much for this. Thank you very much for having me. It's the Shift Podcast. We're going to move into a conversation here with my friend Ari Shapiro, and he is a special guest. We've had a lot on the show here tonight, but another here to give us a little chat. He's a journalist. He's a podcaster, sports reporter. He's a publisher, a jack of all trades, really, online at arishapiro.ca. Ari, appreciate you giving us some time here on the show tonight. John, it's always a pleasure for you, especially when we go beyond sports. Yes, we're about to. Mm-hmm. that's right. So in the past, Ari and I had only really talked sports because uh, in years past, in an earlier lifetime, I was working at an all-sports station, and Ari is an excellent guest for all things baseball. And by the way, Ari, this doesn't mean that you're now not allowed to talk sports with me. If the opportunity ever arises, we're going to get you right back onto the uh, onto the batter's mound, so to speak. Batter's mound. That's the a batter's first one. mound. That's, that's, that's a, first a place one. I've never I've never been there before. <laughs> uh, yep, there you go. Um, we're just creating new positions in baseball now. That's what we're we doing. Are. Yeah, and we're also not naming those companies that the aforementioned companies that we work for. We're that's not right. Them either. So that's right. We can ro- roll the dice on that one. Exactly. Um, yeah. All right, uh, Ari. But uh, we're, we're really glad to have you on here because, of course, uh, with the shift being uh, broadcast. I mean, you know, when I do my shows, I'm broadcasting out of Vancouver. When Shane's doing the shows, he's broadcast out of Alberta, and this is a national show. And you know, it just kind of came to my realization that maybe we don't get enough perspectives. Maybe we don't get enough opinions and maybe we don't get enough experiences from people living out on the eastern side of Canada. And um, I, obviously, Ontario being the big one. And that's where I think you have a really great uh, fit for this show right now. It's because you being in northern Ontario, well, at least northern uh, north of the big cities, that allows us to have your perspective on everything that's been happening in Ontario that uh, usually we would only be able to spend speculate on and having the added misfortune i say misfortune because it's a long time i've I've lived in this province for four decades Mm -hmm. so for your listeners from any demographic you know whether it's a baby boomer or gen x or or someone who's a millennial i've I've got this um i don't know if i'd call it uh the privilege of knowing things and seeing things for what they are but let's just say as an admirer and student of history i've seen a lot of things that have repeated themselves and some things that haven't and until from the east or west coast Canada, I find yeah we're just a diff- we're just a different animal. Politically, we're a different animal. You look at the stripes of this province, and if you really go back, John, as far as like the mid '80s, that's when you just started to get this abacus of ideological representation. What I mean by that is, for your listeners, we've had it all. We've had left wing socialistic governments. We've had right wing populist governments. We've gone through a who's who of values and political ideologies in this province. And whether you were an admirer of Bob Ray or Mike Harris or Dalton McGinty, 
there aren't that many admirers left in that last name mm. that I mentioned. It all seemed to address what your political stripes were. There was a spot for everybody. And then along came Doug Ford. Mm-hmm. And then everything changed. And what I mean by that is we're not a province governed by political ideology anymore. We're, we're governed by the worst shade of populism, which is the one known as I have no idea what we're doing. And we're just going to keep telling you that for the next 14 months. Right. So that brings us to uh, a tweet that you, you, you dispatched yesterday on your on your on your Twitter. And uh, it, it obviously, you know, it caught my eye because I said, wow, Ari's got some strong opinions here with uh, with what Doug Ford has been doing. So take us through uh, just your feelings on, on what that I guess uh, that that premiership has been like under Doug Ford, certainly since even before the beginning of the uh, the pandemic, because it seems to have been a major issue for a lot of Ontarians just being there and and getting to realize like this is the leader that we've selected. It's not really what we had in mind. No, it isn't. It certainly is not. Not for many traditional conservatives that I happen to know personally. You know, I, you know me to be a centrist. You know that I go around trying to give people an appreciation of what it means to be an empiricist, which is to say, always pay attention to the climate on a subject-by-subject basis, right? On an issue-by-issue basis. Don't just, we're beyond just painting something with a, with a brush and saying that it's a conservative or liberal value. The truth is we're in a whole different reality now where it's about survival and helping people who are legitimately suffering as a result of the pandemic. And here in Ontario, you know, when when Doug Ford was elected, I uh, remember speaking with a couple of different industry, uh, you know, pundits, if you will. Right. Because I, I, I use all the analogies for sports here. I had my my armchair critics and they were giving me the over under on how long it would be before something good or something bad would happen. And throughout all of the predictions of what it means to have this conservative populist come uh come and arrive in charge the way he has and remember for the longest time here in ontario we thought maybe we'd have a female leader for the conservative party um i was hoping it would be someone like a rona ambrose who really should have been the leader of the party today and if she were it'd be a different story federally but here we were considering i think carolyn mulrooney and and christina elliott and there was this sense of like you know it'll be the conservative party but they're not going to be all about social conservatism they want to be practical fiscal conservatives right And none of that happened. Instead, we got Doug Ford, who wrote his popularity on the coattails of his brother, Rob, whom, as you know, and many of your listeners do, was was quite a popular uh, Toronto mayor here. Uh, Certainly one that that today people are pining for because John Tory is not as easy to relate to. For starters, he's a billionaire. You know, when you're Mm. an extremely wealthy man, it's hard for you to relate to people who consider themselves disenfranchised or dispossessed, which is something the Fords did very well. And Doug ran that, you know, Doug Ford came along and he said, I'm going to run on that platform like my brother as an everyday, every man whom you can call on the cell phone and say, they didn't pick up my recycling, I'm struggling. Mm -hmm. Or it could be anything that you as a citizen are legitimately concerned about. And he's all like, I'm here to, to, to listen to you, especially considering how unpopular our liberal government was here. Like it, it was an absolute disaster. If you think about the climate in this province, there was an opportunity for the NDP and the Liberals to to bounce back after a couple of years of all the controversy with the previous government and Dalton McGuinty as their leader. Kathleen Wynne, in some ways, represented a breath of fresh air, especially against someone like a Doug Ford. Right. But instead, we we, we got this populist in charge, and 
I remember telling a, a couple of my closest friends that if God forbid there's an apocalyptic reality, like society starts really struggling and he has to step up, we're going to be in trouble mm. because he didn't, he didn't ride uh, to popularity on a platform of actually knowing what he was going to do. He simply said, what we've got is terrible. Give me a chance and I'll prove what I can do. So we flash forward to today at this uh, crest of a third wave that we're finally hearing news that maybe we're, we're distancing ourselves and making progress. And as of his press conference, and that's what inspired the tweet or any other kind of Doug Ford tweet. I, I hate lamenting, John. I'm not a big fan of just feeling bad about a situation and then venting because it's too easy to do that. And quite sure. frankly, I've done it well enough that I can get traction on that alone, but that's an empty feeling. Why does someone have to share in your misery? Why not say something positive? And I've struggled mightily to do that with Doug Ford. I've really reached deep down inside to say, what have you done that I can point to? So if someone comes to me and says, Ari, let's be fair, because I'm not a, a liberal fan or I don't plan to vote for the NDP, what reason should I have to vote for the Conservatives? Well, if it's on the basis of what they've done in the last 14 months, you're not going to find any. Mm. This government has proven to be very irresponsible, not just with how they're engaging their constituents and the people who both voted for them and all the people of Ontario, but they're, pub they're a public relations disaster. Everything they do just smacks with pivoting and being defensive and passing the buck. We've had it bad here. This province has really struggled. And the fact that this lockdown just got arbitrarily extended for two weeks, and I say arbitrarily because there are conflicting reports whether it should be longer. This government refused to bite the bullet, as they say, and go ahead to try to get over this by sacrificing a stretch of time where we knew we could be safe. Instead, mm -hmm. they kept pushing us out there. They kept, they kept catering to the interests of what they felt was important for the province, which was to keep the economy going. Right. But their strategy for how we dealt with the coronavirus itself has been non-existent. It's why, it's why Doug's received international criticism. The impression he gives to his own people in the province is that he's not sure what he's doing. Right. And then he also disappeared for about three or four weeks or so after that horrible stretch where we had that weekend where he increased police authority. Everyone internationally and here at home agree that this is not a man who really should be holding the job considering the way he's performed. If I'm not mistaken, even like various Ontario police forces spoke out and said, we are not following through with that protocol because that seems a little excessive. I'm sure he'll tell you he had the best intentions. Right. Right. He saw the model tracing. He had all the data. He saw the analytics. He said, we're not we're not hitting very well as a team. We have to do something to be more effective. So you know what I'll do? I'll put another three umpires on the field, mm -hmm. give them incredibly sweeping powers to determine whether you can enjoy life. Again, I, I use the sports analogy because if you just think about it from a political perspective, it makes absolutely no sense how he came to that conclusion and didn't anticipate the fallout. The fallout, yeah. not just from people who are living here as taxpaying, law-abiding citizens, but as you mentioned, as uh, instruments of authority and law and order, having to come to the reckoning that now their, their political leader has drawn the line of complete and utter, um, I would describe it best as, uh, as uh, paranoia, because I think he's just lost control and he figured the easiest way to do it was to do something like that. But yeah. anyone who's involved in politics, all those names I mentioned to you off the top of this segment, whether it was Ray, whether it was Harris or McGinty, would never have done that. They would have been, I think, as politicians uh, and, and pragmatic ones, they would have been very proactive in understanding how to make people trust what you're trying to do. 
Doug Ford simply hasn't done that. And that's why if you go on social media, he's getting skewered. Yeah. I, I have people who I've befriended online who are guests of my show who skewer him extremely well. It's got to be tough to be him. And that's why he wept. I mean, there's no crying in baseball and there's definitely no crying in politics. And the fact that he wept three, four weeks ago mm-hmm. is a stunning indictment of just how unhinged he's become and, and capable of, of handling the pressure. Sorry to say. We're in conversation with Ari Shapiro, giving us a perspective on what it's like living in Ontario, our Eastern connection of sorts. And Ari, before we went into the break there, we were discussing uh, what you're detailing is the failures of the Doug Ford government in your province. But as we know, there are two sides to any argument. So what about the fact that Ontario has, in certain circumstances, actually led the way in this country throughout the pandemic? And I'll bring up the fact that Ontario recently uh, did announce last month that all schools, for example, would be moving to a virtual classroom setting, essentially closing schools to physical in-class learning, which is something that other provinces, including here in British Columbia, have been extremely hesitant to do. So Ontario closed their schools before anybody else. And it certainly doesn't help in the case of the Ford government that you have a an absolutely horrible relationship with the union, the teachers union to mm. begin with. People have to remember that before the pandemic became what it was and, and the reality in our lives, it's not as if we had harmony between the teachers and the government. And I think that was the biggest problem is that you already had this acrimonious relationship where clearly both sides didn't trust one another. And now you've got a pandemic. You've got everything from the consideration of the children, their education, how it's affecting them psychologically, how it's affecting parents, how it's affecting teachers. And it was obvious that the way the government was handling this was just not with confidence. You know, for starters, they had people in charge of the portfolio, whether it's education, whether it's health, whether it's infrastructure, who have very little experience, John, in those fields. Mm -hmm. And I, as a rule, have learned to not trust people who tell me that they know what's in my best interests in a field where I expect them to be an authority and they have no experience. So, for example, I'm referring to Stephen Lecce. This guy is, uh, you know, someone who's perfected being a politician through public relations and marketing. He has no idea about the fundamentals and the philosophy behind how children are supposed to evolve in social settings in an educational or scholastic environment where you have these conditions, which clearly now we see we're threatening families at home. Plus, the schools themselves were not in very good shape. And I think that's what bothers me the most about this is we discovered through the military exposing what's going on in retirement homes to the teachers and students revealing pictures of what's going on in schools, that these are areas of society that have been neglected. So you've got an austere government, a populist government saying, we know what's best for you. We don't want to spend any money on it. And that was revealed in a scathing article four or five weeks ago that apparently there are billions of dollars that was earmarked to be spent that the conservatives had originally planned to use to balance the budget and have been holding back. Now, I ask you, John, if you had, let's say, as the case in other provinces, a liberal or NDP government, would they have held back that money? Right. I don't think so. And so it goes back to the point, which is this is about survival at this point. And unfortunately, this government has not made the moves to give people the impression that they actually care about whether they survive or not. That's a huge problem. Well, it's an interesting point you bring out with uh, some of the elected, I guess, appointed ministers that are in that cabinet, because in one hand, uh, it's one thing to say, well, it's actually kind of nice to hear a politician, especially a leader, um, delegate and, and want to just 
turn to the experts or those that are in positions to actually address those issues directly and say, I don't know anything anything about this. It's not my area of specialty. So I'm going to go and refer to somebody who is an expert. But then as you point out, those appointed so-called experts are not actually maybe the highly qualified individuals that we're led to believe they are. Well said. That's exactly it. There's way too much cronyism in the form of elected officials going out and hiring authorities, enlisting supporters and consultants who claim to be these experts because they might have a PhD, but they're politically motivated. Mm -hmm. You know, I can only listen to Christine Elliott so many times as Minister of Health talk about things that I know are beyond her scope. Why? Because I'm sure she never in a million years anticipated that she'd become uh, someone in charge of this portfolio during a pandemic. So maybe she thought, you know, I'd just be in charge of this ministry. I'll handle it and we'll move on from it. But the reality is that there are huge challenges here. And this this argument you hear a lot about people saying, why are you being so hard on, on them given that they've never gone through this? I'm not criticizing them because I expected that they'd be prepared for this. My problem is that we are now, again, heading into a potential fourth wave. We're dealing with all this adversity. And this most recent press conference did nothing to make myself or people that I know feel confident that this government is on top of this problem. I think it came across across as too reactionary. And that's what this government, unfortunately, has now uh, identified itself as being in the eyes of many people, a very uh, reactive force that will blame other elements for their problems. And I mean, that's tiresome. I'm, I'm, I'm sure your listeners will agree there's only so much buck passing as they say you can pass the buck so much and when you go ahead and start blaming the prime minister for all your problems this is not to say that the prime minister uh himself is is been flawless in his right execution. no that's not what we're saying yep we're not saying that at all i can we could probably have a separate show of you and i discussing my concerns about the way justin trudeau has handled this absolutely i'm talking yeah. about taking responsibility as a leader with conviction and letting the constituents you have understand that even though you're not happy with what's going on around you, your singular focus and cause is to make sure you help people who need it. And here in Ontario, the statistics are out. We're going to lose 20% of all small businesses. There's a 50% chance that the average business in the next three years is going to probably go under because they won't be able to sustain going through another extended period. These were things we knew would happen well in advance, my friend. Unfortunately, we, we just didn't see any kind of proactive measure. We didn't see something that you could refer to and say six months ago, they got a handle on it or nine months ago, they understood it. No, six months ago, they were pushing on keeping things open. And three, four months ago, when we found out how bad it was, they kept the province open for three or four more days after Christmas. I mean, come on. Yeah. But let's be serious. If we're trying to attack a problem and solve it and provide support, that's not how you do it with this fair weather, blustery back and forth. It's not healthy. Yeah. And, and, and finally, Ari, your opinions here, because, you know, I feel like across Canada hosting the show, hearing from our listeners, which I know it doesn't always accurately represent like everybody in this country, but it is a national show. So it gives us a unique perspective into what Canadians are feeling and what Canadians are thinking. There's a part of me that strongly believes there is a desire to see conservative governments take place uh, provincially and federally. But right now, based on what we're seeing with the leaders that align themselves as the leaders of the so-called provincial conservative parties or the leaders of the so-called federal conservative parties, it feels like across the deck, everyone seems to agree these are not the right people to represent the party. And so we don't really know where our current political support is going to lie in. So my question to you is, 
um, looking at Doug Ford and how he has handled this entire pandemic, you make good points. No one's ever been trained to deal with a pandemic like this who's been a lifelong politician like Doug Ford has. But do you feel that there are Ontarians that still want to vote Conservative but don't necessarily want to vote Doug Ford? I think that many Conservatives here in Ontario are looking at what's happening south of the border and they're understanding that what makes Canada unique compared to our neighbors down south is that the majority of the party seems to want to move forward with a, a, an agenda that's based more on traditional conservative values that that are less interested about regulating people's lifestyles and more focusing on trying to do things like live with accountability not have big government and just basically have an opportunity to to prosper mm-hmm. um unfortunately the last federal leadership uh, nomination process, which we know ended so strangely, because not only did we have that weird uh, instance where it seemed like there was some kind of technical error, but the fact that so many conservatives nationally voted to appoint Aaron O'Toole over Peter McKay is maybe why I believe we're a lot closer to our neighbors than we realize. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people who identify as conservatives who are willing to stay firmly entrenched in a social conservative circle rather than understanding what it means to be a small C conservative or a traditional Republican. And what that means is you're going to see more splintering of the party. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether it was Maxime Bernier creating his his strain, right? The People's Party, right. I don't know how many people really are in that party because it seems like all he's doing is, is is the wrong moves when it comes to bringing people together. He's a very polarizing figure now. Um, here in Ontario, the Conservatives came to power because people were really fed up with what they consider to be a corrupt liberal government. So the abacus has to swing. Does it mean that there's going to be an NDP government potentially during the next election? Who knows? It's possible. But in order for conservatives to stay confident in the party, it might have to it might have to fall upon the party's shoulders to get rid of Doug Ford. Because yeah. I see more and more people being driven away saying, I'd rather not vote at all, or I'd rather give my vote to the liberals than to just throw my my lot in with, with Doug. Because I, I, he just hasn't done enough for a conservative voter to feel that by going ideologically in his direction, it's benefited them. Um, we're just getting the same old nonsense that we got from 10, 15, 20 years ago of unscrupulous politicians trying to find opportunities to make money, whether it's at the expense of our of our lustrous uh, green belt or whether it's building another highway. I mean, the very fact that the Conservative Party of Ontario has discussed building a redundant highway that mm. we know will increase traffic by 30 seconds at the cost of billions during a pandemic tells you how oddly and strangely misanthropic this government is becoming because what people want to hear are things like paid sick leave and they want to hear about benefits that they can take advantage of to get through a really tough time and they want to hear about how wage subsidies are now being abused by greedy corporations and that's a great opportunity for Doug Ford and the Conservatives to step in and say we want to show some leadership but they haven't done it so to answer your question yeah I think there are a lot of Conservative voters who are incredibly disappointed that there was an opportunity for the country to swing with the abacus. And I mean, look at the last, uh, you know, a federal election. Right. The majority of people voted conservative. That's right. 
They may not have gotten the result politically, but that's not the surprising part. The surprising part was that there are more and more people who are holding on tightly and saying, I'm feeling a sense of loss in my tradition and in my culture. And in treating the conservative party as an instrument to stay viable, what they're overlooking is that they've got some pretty bad fellows at the helm. I mean, with apologies to anyone who's a big fan of Doug Ford or Jim Kenney, the reality is, is that they have really failed by making some smug assumptions that this would be over soon and that we'd all be fine. And clearly we're not. He is Ari Shapiro. Uh, he's going to be joining us more regularly here on the weekend edition of The Shift, giving us an Eastern connection, if you will. You can find his work online at arishapiro.ca. Appreciate you joining us, sir, and looking forward to hearing you again. Always looking forward to speaking with you soon, John. Be well. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.